Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I simply don't like when people play pop psychologist, so I opt not to do so. But the fact is, this is now the second generation of ownership that is opting to move a team. And let me be as direct as direct can be. It is opting to move a team. The team does not have to relocate. Ownership is choosing to relocate. When the Selective Service Committee presented this scenario where if you go in, Muhammad, you're not actually, as you know, going to be on the front line. You're going to be in special services and you will be boxing fitness training and morale boosting things in front of the troops. He would say, that's actually even worse symbolically. Because if I go over there and I'm in special services and I'm treated like Elvis was or Sammy Davis Jr. or Joe Lewis, and I'm doing these exhibitions, it shows that I approve of the war and the U.S.'s role over there. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have a hell of a show this week. We are speaking to the only female CEO in the history of the National Football League, the author of You Negotiate Like a Girl, the one and only Amy Trask. Now, Amy Trask was a CEO for 16 years. What team, you ask? The Raiders. So make no mistake about it, we're going to speak to her about Oakland's move to Las Vegas. Also, we got author and sports commentator Bijan Bain about an important date in history that's coming up, the 50th anniversary of the day heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali refused to be inducted into the U.S. Army by the Houston Draft Board. I am the greatest. Also, I've got some choice words, and it's some choice words I wrote four years ago about Jackie Robinson. We're about to hit the 70th anniversary 
of the date that Jackie Robinson broke the Major League Baseball color line. And I'm going to read to you some of my thoughts about the Jackie Robinson movie 42 and why it was such a bitter pill for me to swallow. Got a Just Stand Up Award, Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, got a Kaepernick watch, and so much more. But first and foremost, let's speak to Amy Trask. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. And now let's get her on the line, the former CEO of the Oakland Raiders, the only female CEO in the history of the National Football League, an NFL analyst on the CBS Sports Network, a panelist on the We Need to Talk, as well as the other pregame show, Shows. She's also the author of a tremendous book, one of my favorites, called You Negotiate Like a Girl, on her experience as an executive. So proud to have her on the show, Amy Trask. First and foremost, I know this is the question you've gotten a million times, but the move, Oakland Raiders to Las Vegas Raiders, what are your thoughts about it? Oh, mixed emotion. Uh, you asked about thoughts, however, not emotion. It, it, I don't think it, it really should surprise anyone that the team um, is relocating. Twice over the last year and a half or so, the team has requested of the league the other owners, permission to move. Uh, the team committed tremendous, tremendous resources, economic and otherwise, to pursuing the opportunity to move to Los Angeles and share a stadium with the San Diego Chargers. And the moment um, that dream was dashed, the team turned those resources to Las Vegas and, and to pursuing an opportunity there. So I, I share all this in the following um, sense. If we believe actions speak louder than words, and I do, it's been clear by the organization's actions for the last few years that relocation has been a desire. Hmm. Now, you're, you're such a Bay Area person. I mean, in addition to working for the Raiders for so many years, being the CEO of the Raiders, you also went to Berkeley. So I know the Bay Area is near and dear to your heart. Uh, so on an emotional level, what's your reaction to the move? Sure. Um, and I consider myself a Californian, uh, grew up in Southern California, was in Oakland for all of those years, you noted, and I'm back in Southern California now. So um, I just wanted to declare my love for the entire state, Bay Area mm -hmm. included. You're right. right. <laughs> um, look, going to the emotion issue, I wasn't with the organization when Al um, opted to move it from Oakland to Los Angeles. I was, as you noted, a student uh, at Berkeley at the time, um, he originally declared that intent to move. I was, however, with the organization when he opted to move it from Los Angeles back to Oakland. And as magnificent as that move was for the Raider fans in the Bay Area, it was tremendous, tremendous heartbreak that I witnessed firsthand to Raiders fans in the Southern California area. So I, I do feel... Um, I don't know what the right word is. I guess the best way to state it is my heart is with those fans who live in and around the Oakland area who are suffering this heartbreak either for the first or second time. That said, the Raider fan base is not only national, it's international. And there will be fans who enjoy this move to Las Vegas because they 
support the team without regard to location. There are fans attending games in Oakland every week that are flying into Oakland to do so. Those fans will simply fly elsewhere. But look, the fans in Oakland are absolutely magnificent. Um, The team's not going to be able to replicate that black hole atmosphere. You know, it it looks to Mm -hmm. me from the outside looking in that the team does not wish to do so. Um, It's going to be a different environment, a different experience in Las Vegas. And I do feel for the fans in the Bay Area. Now, as I want to ask you if you were advising uh, the Coliseum Authority, if you were advising uh, the mayor of Oakland, because the people of Oakland, they're going to owe about $95 million uh, in tax money um, until I believe it's 2025. Now, they could go to Mark Davis because he still needs a place to play for the next several years and say, fine, that'll be $95 million in rent. Or I guess you could just go play at UNLV Stadium instead. I mean, this is one of those rare cases where the local government actually has some leverage. Do you think they should use that? Well, I think they've already given up a tremendous amount of leverage they might otherwise have had for the reasons you just noted. My understanding, and again, this is outside looking in, so I'm not privy to all of the details or facts, but it has been extensively reported that the team already has in place options for 2017 and 2018. And I believe or I understand that the terms of those options are fixed and it has been exercised for 2017. As such, if the city or county, the municipalities wish to make a strong play, as you just noted, um, that option doesn't exist for those years, but certainly could for 2019. But, you know, an organization is not going to agree to that. The, the team can can go to a place in Las Vegas, as you just noted. You know, heck, it could move in with the 49ers for a year. So I understand the point you're making. I just don't think that's a real option for the city and county. Now, you... These are questions that are more about psychology than about the cold, hard business here. But you've probably heard this where people look at this move by Mark Davis and they say, well, like father, like son, Al moved the team. Now Mark's moving the team. What do you think of that familial analysis? Well, I've I've always um, recoiled when – and this is not sports-specific or Raider-specific. I simply don't like when people play pop psychologist – So I opt not to do so. Um, But the fact is, as you just stated, this is now the second generation of ownership that is opting to move a team. And let me be as direct as direct can be. It is opting to move a team. The team does not have to relocate. Ownership is choosing to relocate. So I'm not going to, you know, as I noted, play pop psychologist and discuss family relations But moving a team is a choice. Look, I had discussions with Al for the almost 30 years I was in the league working, the almost 30 years I was working for him and and thus part of the league, and with others throughout the league, that fans are what make the NFL the NFL we know it to be. In other words, the NFL is what it is today because of the fans. And fans are not to be taken for granted. I I just, I can't emphasize how strongly I feel about that. And there will be people who say to me, okay, Amy, but, you know, you can't simply look to fans 
in a market, a team, whether it's the Chargers or the Rams or the Raiders are leaving, you have to look to a nation full of fans. But, you know, the, the relationship between a fan and a team is precious. And in moving a team, it will break the heart of fans in that market. And I agree with you about not liking to play pop psychologist. I mean, I don't like it, I think, because of the way my dad always used to yell at me. But um, no, it was a joke. Um, sorry. Uh, you, know what, I, you know what? Can I tell you something? I really, really thought it was a joke, and it was actually very, very funny. But something <laughs> kept me I, – I stifled my laughter because I thought there's just this itty-bitty-bitty chance you're being serious, and I did not want to laugh if it was serious. But that was well done. That was very funny. Thank you. I like making Freudian slip jokes when I want to say one thing but mean a mother. Um, you did it. Ah, uh, got that too. Thank you. Okay, so this is another question, though, and, I, and bringing it down to this level. Do you think Al would have moved the team to Vegas? Oh, boy. Um, you know, Al liked the Vegas market very much. And when I say market, I guess I should say it more, more clearly. Um, Al liked Vegas. I mean, we had many um, what I call Raider family events celebrating Al, Al's life, birthdays and such in Las Vegas. He liked Las Vegas. Vegas! Vegas, baby! But that said, I believe he would have been very, very conflicted. Um, Prior to his death, he shared with me, and I mean, look, this is discussions we had over a 30-year period, but I'm talking about just in the waning years of his life. He shared with me that he wanted the team to stay in Oakland. Um, he really had an affinity for that market. So, you know, I don't think it's mutually inconsistent or mutually exclusive to say that, that he did like Las Vegas and he did want a new, modern, state-of-the-art facility for the team. His heart's desire was to keep the team in the Bay Area. But as we were discussing these things in the waning years of his life, he articulated to me that he was going to leave that decision as to where the team should play its next, play its next step, if you will. He was going to leave that to his son, which he did. Now, now you mentioned the black hole before, and it's so interesting because – like you said, the NFL is a national operation, but these local fan bases are really what animate these teams. And it's hard to think maybe the Cle- maybe the dog pound in Cleveland. I mean, there are these examples of these local fan bases that really animate the entire operation and the brand, really. And I keep thinking of what the black hole is going to be like over the next several years, knowing the team is going to Vegas if they stay at the Coliseum. What do you think the scene is going to be like at Raiders games? And, of course, this is complicated by the fact that they're they're really good right now. Well, you know, look, there are fans that fall into different camps, if you will. There are those fans that live in and around the Bay Area that will look at these next couple of – one year if the team only stays one, two years if the team stays two – as a final opportunity to enjoy the team while it is in Oakland, while they can go be part of that incredible experience. There will be other fans who say, you know what? No, I'm done. They, they may not articulate it as I'm about to, but the thinking may be, this is akin to one spouse saying to the other, I found someone I love more. Um, I Mm. found someone with whom I want to spend the rest of my life. So I'm leaving you. Oh, but by the way, this new spouse and I, 
we're building our dream home and it's not going to be ready for a couple of years. So I'm going to live with you while we build Oof. that dream home together. And those fans may opt not to go. And, you know, if that's a very, very personal, very individual decision for the pa- fans that want to continue to support the team while it's in Oakland and enjoy every last moment, terrific for the fans who say, you know what, you've crushed me either for the first time or if it's a much older fan for the second time, I'm done. That's their choice. They get to make that decision. And then, of course, there's the fans that fly in from other locations anyway, so it's not necessarily as significant to them. Mm. I wonder the percentage of that. Uh, I know the Raiders have that kind of pull, but it'll be interesting to see how upset they are, even the global fan who loves the Oakland as much as they love the Raider. And, And by the way, if I may interrupt, may I do this? Please. The issue of visiting fans, and now I'm not going to talk about visiting, I'm not going to talk about Raider fans who travel, but fans of the visiting team, that's going to be more significant when the team moves to Las Vegas. Because if you're a fan of a team that is playing the Raiders in Las Vegas, and you're scanning the list of games for the upcoming season, deciding which one trip you may make to support your team, there's a good likelihood you're going to say, wow, let me grab a bunch of my friends. Let's go to the game to support our team when they play in Las Vegas. Vegas, baby. Right. As such, the Raiders may well experience, I anticipate will, a much more significant percentage of visiting team fans in the building. And, you know, it's incomprehensible to me that the team didn't factor that into its analysis when deciding to go to Vegas. So that suggests to me... If that suggests to me that they did factor it in, in other words, I'm saying I got to believe that any team would factor that into its analysis. And therefore, that was clearly okay with them because they decided to move. But that's an incredibly interesting point and one I haven't heard made elsewhere, Amy, that they're going to go from having one of the most terrifying, literally, home field advantages to playing almost in in this kind of neutral – in a good way. Oh, yeah, believe me. I've I've been in the – Black hole. Yep. It's, it was fun as hell, actually. But but like from that to uh, basically renouncing a home field advantage, almost playing in a neutral site. Well, I do think Raider fans will travel to those games. I do look um, Las Vegas. The 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 tremendous tremendous proportion of Raider fans who live in Southern California live in an area we refer to here as the Inland Inland Empire, and that is in the eastern portion of Los Angeles. There are those who will tell you that that's a three and a half hour drive to Las Vegas. I will tell you I'm related to people who do it in three or maybe a scotch under three, but I'm not going to name names because that would get me in trouble. But, you know, give or take a three or so hour drive, there will be a lot of fans from Southern California who go. There will be fans from the Bay Area who fly. So I'm not suggesting there won't be a Raider presence in that building. I'm just suggesting they're giving up that je ne sais quoi that is the black hole you know it, it was it was upsetting to hear uh about the ownership meeting where they voted 31 to 1 for the move and to have Stephen ross uh of the dolphins be the only voice to just say what you just said which is just like i don't just don't think we should treat our fans that way and just that basic common sense assumption that you assume was otherwise just not in the room I wanted to ask you, when you were in these rooms and in these spaces, if you could give us some insight, 
Was that ever said and debated out more fully when teams would talk about moving from city to city? Are there owners who have that kind of care for the local fan base, or is it that kind of cold-hearted? Uh, there are certainly some who, who care deeply about um, their local fan bases. And, you know, there's others who don't, and there's others who believe that fan bases um, evolve over time. So, you know, look, certainly some owners feel strongly about the fans, others less so, and others who simply define fans differently than, than say, I might or you might. But, you know, people have asked me, was I surprised that the vote was 31 to 1? And the answer is no. And I'll tell you why. There were innumerable times over those almost 30 years where I walked into one of those one-per-club or two-per-club meetings where there was a group of owners, let's say six or seven or so, and of course it takes nine owners to block a vote. Six or seven owners might be solidly against a vote, maybe even eight, but they didn't have the ninth and couldn't persuade the ninth. So, or the, the seventh, eighth, and ninth, or the eighth and ninth, whatever it is, they had a block of six, seven, however many owners, and they couldn't get those last few votes to block an initiative. And when that was clear, they then changed their votes to yes as well. Not because they changed their minds, but once it was clear that something was going to pass, they wanted there to be the appearance of unanimity, of solidarity, of of, you know, mm -hmm. all for one, one for all. So I'm not surprised it was 31 to one. Um, my understanding was that going into the room, there was more than Stephen Ross who opposed it, but that when it became clear it was going through, a number of those owners went with the flow, so to speak. And, you know, to Stephen Ross's, con con um, to, to his credit, he, and, and I, I really, really hate the expression I'm about to use, but he not only talk the talk, he walked the walk. He did underwrite significant improvements to his stadium in Miami uh, or in South Florida. He did write that check, so to speak, and he spoke up saying that he believes that's the right way to proceed. So, you know, he had the courage of his convictions. Mm. Similar question for you about uh, Colin Kaepernick. Similar in that you've been in these spaces, you've been in these rooms, there have been a ton of articles saying that he hasn't been signed because it's a political blackballing. And I know there was never a player that outspoken when you were CEO of the Raiders. But how much of that is a calculation when teams are figuring out uh, who to sign, particularly at the quarterback position? It's, a, a, it's different with each of the 32 teams. And I think sometimes the public as a large, um, and, and maybe it's just sort of, ease of communication referred to all owners or all teams when in fact these are 32 different businesses owned by 32 different individuals and there are some of some owners who you know i'm absolutely positively convinced factor such things into their analysis there are other owners who factor it into a much lesser extent and look i had the privilege of working for an owner that didn't factor such things in at all I mean, look, there will be people listening to our discussion who are Raider fans and who loved Al. There will be people who are listening who are neither Raider fans nor loved Al and maybe at the extreme opposite end of the spectrum. But one thing on which all should agree is he really was ahead of his time in not caring about individualities 
which differentiate us and have no bearing on whether or not we can perform a job. It's not coincidental that he hired Tom Flores and then he hired me and then he hired Art Shell. You know, here's a man who was unconcerned with these individualities that have no bearing on whether we could play a play. Let me let you in on a little secret. I actually didn't play the game, (laughs) Um, but on whether we could do a job. So I worked for a man who would not have factored any off-field issues of the nature we're discussing into his analysis. There are other owners who do, and you can't make one sweeping conclusion for all 32 owners. But it is – I hear what you're saying there, but it is interesting related to the Oakland-Vegas move story in that you talked about how there's differentiation, but then shove comes to push, and there's the public face of 31 out of 32 saying no. And I know in the case of Colin Kaepernick, that would be called collusion – but, you know, we've seen it, and I, I hate equating these two people at all, but you've seen it with, like, Kaepernick and Ray Rice and this idea that some players are just— Oh, and there's no equation whatsoever, but I hear you. There's no equation whatsoever, but just this idea that, oh, this person's just not going to be signed. Look, I think it's Venn—do you remember from math, Venn diagrams? I'm a child of the era of new math, which, by the way, wasn't really math at all. And so as poor as I am at some components, I love Venn diagrams. And you really need to look at this as overlapping circles. There are some circles, some teams fit within the circle of won't consider Colin because of those issues. There are other teams who will say, I'm not concerned with those issues. There are some teams which need a starting quarterback. There are others which are set at starting quarterback. Some need a good backup. Some do not. Now you've got to put all these circles on top of one another, and you've got to find the overlap between a team which needs a quarterback and an owner who does not care about those issues. That's the overlap he has to find. Mm. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, you actually being a presence inside these kinds of high-level meetings. It's worth taking a step back. And, I mean, you're you're still – please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're still the only female CEO – of an NFL team who's ever held that position. And, I mean, what needs to happen to have that change? I'm not saying a kind of, of, of Rooney Rule effect, but do you think there should be some sort of regimentation more, where more women are interviewed for these jobs? Look, I hope that changes over time, just as I hope it changes not just for women, but for, for every person. You know, I believe business Darwinism should prevail. In other words, If as a business, you are evaluating or considering or not considering individuals based on race, gender, ethnicity, religion, or any other individuality which has no bearing on whether or not someone can do a job, you are by definition ruling out large swaths of qualified candidates. And you know what? You deserve to fail if you're doing that. Um, This is probably a whole nother discussion for a different time, if you'll have me back at such time (laughs) when we can discuss this, because I do have a whole lot to say on it, and I know we're running towards the end of our time together. But look, I did my job. I chose to comport myself without regard to gender. It never made sense to me, it still doesn't, that I should go into any situation, any circumstance, an NFL owners meeting, a meeting of all the Raiders owners, um, a football meeting, a municipal meeting, a banking meeting, thinking about my gender if I didn't want anyone else thinking about my gender. 
how in the world is it fair for me to expect others not to make my gender an issue if I am making my gender an issue? Um, now, that said, that worked for me. That doesn't mean that's the way that everyone chooses to comport herself in business. But that's what worked for me. If there was an online petition to get you uh, in the studio for the CBS pregame show, sitting in those seats next to James Brown, uh, would that be the sort of thing that you would be make you uncomfortable, that people were putting that up front saying, hey, not only is this the best person for it, but she happens to be a woman and we want that diversity? Or would that be the sort of thing where you'd sort of be like, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that? How I feel about what? The opportunity or the, posi- or the petition? Let me just tell you, I'm, smile- I'm smiling ear to ear as you're saying this because um, I don't anticipate that anything of that nature would ever occur, but it would touch my heart. Um, I know a lot of people who would love to see you in that chair. That's what made me bring it up. Well, that's very, very um, gracious and generous of you to say. I value my relationship with CBS Sports and CBS Sports Network tremendously. They are magnificent people with whom to work, and I would welcome any opportunity to work with them in any manner. And one last question. You've been so generous with your time, but I just would be so remiss if I didn't ask you this because he's been a guest on the show. Uh, you're involved wait, 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 in. Can I guess? Can I guess? Yes. Okay. No, you know what? I'm going to get it wrong. I'll tell you right now. I'm, I'm not. I, my guess was going to be you were going to you were going to say Mike Pereira has been on the show and he and and do I think it was a fumble? And the answer is yes, it was a fumble. <laughs> that was not the question. Okay, that, I'm, I'm done guessing. And, and yes, I agree with you that it was a fumble <laughs> to, to the nth power. Um, but that's a little New York bias in there too. Uh, and then my uh, Boston-based yeah, <laughs> producer is, is is jumping up and down and shaking his head. But, hey, let's move on from, from the tuck rule for a moment. Ed, I, I, as a pre- I, I have, this is what I really wanted to ask you is you're involved in sports. You have an incredibly like, progressive but also contextual and societal analysis of these sports questions. You went to Berkeley. Uh, and so I got to ask about Dr. Harry Edwards and if you ever oh. had interactions with him at Berkeley and what those were like, how they may have shaped you and any sort of relationship you guys had as you got into the Oakland sports establishment. I did not have any interaction whatsoever with Harry while I was at Cal. Um, and by the way, if we're going to talk about Cal, let's just note what a football powerhouse we are. Okay. Oh, and <laughs> Hey there, Boston based producer. How you doing? Um, <laughs> that's how they say it in Boston, right? How you doing? How you um, doing? I think that's more Brooklyn, but uh, I think you're right. I think I got that wrong. Um, I think you, event, just, I just say not, he's wicked smart and he'll be happy. I, you know what? Someone taught me that expression, wicked smart. And that's a great expression. Oh, um, okay. Works. I did not know Harriet Cal. I did have the opportunity to meet and to interact with Harry from time to time uh, while I was part of the NFL. We did not see eye to eye on everything. We did see eye to eye on some things. Um, And one thing I love about that is whenever we had a discussion, we could agree, we could disagree, we could disagree agreeably, we could engage in reasoned, reasonable discourse. And he was tremendous to me throughout my career. I really, he, he was a very, very um, tremendously supportive person. Well, that's fantastic. Amy Trask, I, I ask all my guests this and I'll leave you with this. When, when you're trying to work, or maybe it's when you're just trying to work out, what kind of music gets you in the zone? NWA. Really? 
Straight Outta Compton, Gangsta Gangsta, um, NWA, and um, that is not something I've come to of late. I have been an NWA fan, and, and I like that entire genre, but my favorite. Oh, look, one of my one of our, our beloved four-legged family is named Biggie Smalls. She's the notorious B.I.G. She weighs about four pounds. Um, but, yes, that's the genre I like, and NWA tops the list. Is it a little bit because they were uh, Raiders to the full? Does, does that factor into it at all? No, 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 no. It's just the music. It's just the music. Well, fantastic. Uh, straight out of Compton, crazy MFer named Amy. Uh, yeah, great to right. talk. <laughs> My husband used to tell me um, when we lived in the Bay Area before we moved back down south, we lived in a, a lovely little. Um, cul-de-sac and there were lots of kids always playing on the street and I'd come home in my little car with the top down blasting NWA and my husband would look at me from time to time and say maybe turn the music down right when you're driving through all the kids that are playing in the street and I looked at him and said yeah okay maybe yeah. Well, Amy you are gangster gangster mm-hmm. thank you so much <laughs> and, and here's a tease for you I'll leave you with this there may be some information about that tour coming soon I might start my own little rap group. Oh, my goodness. Well, well now, now we just got the early word. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Amy. Really do appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely my privilege and pleasure to join you. Thank you. And, and would love to have you back on strictly to talk about the book, which I, I did promote at the start. I loved it so much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I'm a big, big, big fan of yours, so I'd love to join you again. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. This week we have an indispensable issue. We've got Bill McKibben on the climate movement under Trump. Yes, the climate movement that Trump is trying to eradicate from the memory bank. Sarah Jaffe, one of my favorite writers on the carrier plant that Trump so-called saved in the state of Indiana. And Ricky Kreitner interviews one of the great historians of our time, Eric Foner. You got to check out this issue of The Nation on newsstands, subscription, what have you. You can also go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now I've got some choice words, and it's about the 70th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the Major League Baseball color line. And I am going to make them from the vantage point of reviewing the 2013 movie 42. This week in Major League Baseball is what's known as Jackie Robinson Day. This is when the commissioner of MLB and all of the owners honor the man who broke the color line back in 1947, and then they pat Major League Baseball on the back for being a leader in the civil rights movement. Look, it's possible to appreciate that Major League Baseball will honor one of the 20th century's great anti-racist heroes, but it's also possible, out of respect for Jackie Robinson, to resent the hell out of it. Ignored on this 70th anniversary, ignored on this Jackie Robinson day, are baseball's decades of racism before Jackie broke the color line. Ignored are Robinson's own critiques of baseball's bigoted front office hiring policies. Ignored is the continuance of the racism that surrounds the game in 2013. Ignored is the fact that today in Arizona, Latino players live in fear of being stopped by police 
for not having their papers in order. And the Major League Union actually gives Latino players who have to play in Arizona, even on road games, directions about what to do if stopped by police. Look, the film 42 came out in 2013 about Jackie Robinson's entry into Major League Baseball shares this contradiction. I can certainly understand why many people who I respect love this film. I can understand why a teacher that I know thinks it's a great primer for young people who don't know Jackie's story. I understand why, given the high production values and loving depictions, Jackie Robinson's family has been outspoken in their appreciation. But I didn't like it. And with all respect to all involved, I want to make the case that I don't believe Jackie Robinson would have liked it either. Early in the film, Jackie Robinson, played by Chadwick Boseman, says, I don't think it matters what I believe, only what I do. Unfortunately, that quote is like a guiding compass for all that follows. The filmmakers don't seem to care what Robinson, a deeply political human being, believed either. Instead, 42 rests on the classical Hollywood formula of heroic individual sees obstacle, obstacle is overcome, the end. That works great for Die Hard or American Pie. It doesn't work for a story about an individual deeply immersed and affected by the grand social movements and events of his time. Jackie Robinson's experience was shaped by the Dixiecrats who ruled his Georgia birthplace, the mass struggles of the 1930s, World War II, the anti-communist witch hunts, and later the civil rights and black freedom struggles. To tell his tale as one of individual triumph through his singular greatness is to not tell the story at all. This is particularly ironic since Jackie Robinson spent the last years of his life in a grueling fight against his own mythology. He hated that his tribulations from the 1940s were used to sell a story about an individualistic Booker T. Washington approach to fighting racism. As he said in his speech, and this is an actual Jackie Robinson speech, all these guys who were saying that we've got it made through athletics it's just not so. You as an individual can make it, but I think we've got to concern ourselves with the masses of people, not what happens as an individual. So I merely tell these youngsters when I go out, certainly I've had opportunities that they haven't had, but because I've had these opportunities doesn't mean that I've forgotten, end quote. This was a man tortured by the fact that his own experience was used as a cudgel against building a public fighting movement against racial injustice. He wanted to shift the conversation of his own narrative from one of individual achievement to the stubborn continuance of institutionalized racism in the United States. The film, however, is a celebration of the individual. And if you know how that pained Jackie Robinson, that is indeed a bitter pill. The film's original sin was to set the action entirely in 1946 and 1947. Imagine if Spike Lee had chosen to tell the story of Malcolm X by only focusing on 1959 and 1960, when he was a leader in the Nation of Islam, with no mention of his troubled past or the way his own politics changed later in life. Malcolm X without an arc isn't Malcolm X. Jackie Robinson without an arc is just Frodo Baggins in a baseball uniform. The absence of an arc means we don't get the labor marches in the 1930s to integrate baseball. We don't get his court-martial while in the army. We don't get Jackie Robinson's testimony in 1949 at the House of Un-American Activities Committee against Paul Robeson. 
We don't get his later anguish over what he did to Robeson. We don't get his involvement in the civil rights movement when he was a barnstorming speaker across the South. We don't get his public feud with Malcolm X, where Malcolm derided him as a white man's hero, and he gave it right back, saying, Malcolm is very militant on Harlem street corners, where militancy is not that dangerous. I don't see him in Birmingham, end quote. We don't get his daring, loving obituary to Malcolm after his 1965 assassination at a time when the press, black and white, was throwing dirt on his grave. We don't get his support of the 1968 Olympic boycotters like Tommy Smith and John Carlos. We don't get the way his wife Rachel became an educated political figure who cared deeply about sub-Saharan Africa as well as racial and gender issues in the United States. We don't get the Jackie Robinson who died at 52, looking 20 or 30 years older, broken by the weight of his own myth. We don't get Raging Bull. We get Rocky III. But if the focus of 42 is only going to be on 1946 and 1947, then there's still a lot to cover, namely Brooklyn Dodgers owner Branch Rickey, Jackie Robinson, and their relationship to the Negro Leagues. Rickey, with Robinson's support, established a pattern followed by other owners of refusing to compensate them for their players. On the day Robinson signed with the Dodgers, Rickey said, There is no Negro League as far as I'm concerned. They are not leagues and have no right to expect organized baseball to respect them. This led to the destruction of the largest national black-owned business in the United States. You would never know this from 42. Instead, the film chooses to affix a halo to Branch Rickey's head. Instead, under a prosthetic mask, Harrison Ford plays Rickey as a great white savior, and not even Han Solo can make that go down smoothly. There is no doubt that in my mind that if Jackie Robinson were alive, he would call upon Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, to stop using his history as an excuse to do nothing about the racial issues that currently plague the game. But there is also no doubt in my mind that Jackie Robinson, ever the pragmatist, also would support this film publicly. He was an honorable person who would have been humbled by the effort made to make him look like a hero. He would have seen the value in being a role model of pride and perseverance for the young. But at home, alone, he would have thought about this movie, and he would have thought about the way Major League Baseball and Hollywood are using his legacy, and he would have seethed. Boxing is nothing like going to war with machine guns, bazookas, hangonades, bomber airplanes. My intention is to box to win a clean fight. But in war, the intention is to kill, 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 and continue killing innocent people. Our next guest, the author of two terrific books, Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball, and Martha's Vineyard Basketball, How a Resort League Defied Notions of Race and Class. I truly love both of these books. He's on with us right now to discuss the approaching 50th anniversary, April 28, 1967, of the day heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali refused to be inducted into the U.S. Army by the Houston Draft Board, Bajan Bain. Bajan, how you doing, sir? Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me on again. No, no, no. It's great to talk to you. First and foremost, can you give us the context for that decision? What was happening April 28, 1967? What was the context for Muhammad Ali saying, I am not going to step forward and be drafted to fight in the war in Vietnam? Well, in 1966, uh, 
Muhammad Ali's draft status was reclassified inexplicably to this day from one Y, which is unsatisfactory, to one A, which made him eligible. And when he learned of that, very famously, he expressed some questions about it to media, and he was still active. But it did endanger his status, especially in some states with their boxing commissions, because he uh, was very open in his uh, that he was against uh, American involvement in Southeast Asia and that if drafted, that he probably would not step forward and be inducted. So that was in February. They found out in Miami and he made the thing. You know, this is when the famous quote about the Viet Cong was made and things of that nature. So by 67, uh, he still had his belt as late as March and had defended it against Zora Foley March 22nd in Madison Square Garden. But he was facing uh, many uh, legal issues concerning whether he was constitutionally a Muslim minister and had a right to object to induction or whether or not the government was denying him uh, that status. And so he lawyered up, and he had already lawyered up in 66. And he was still trying to schedule fights in places like Japan because in 66 he had four fights and only one of them was in the U.S. He was fighting in places like Frankfurt and London because a lot of states had already denied him license. So that's the context for when he did get called up because of his uh, altered status to 1A, he was considered a resident of Houston, and he was called downtown to the Houston Draft Board on April 28, 1967, to uh, enter the United States Army. Now, it would have been so easy for Muhammad Ali to choose an easy way out of this. It's not like they were going to give him a gun and send him uh, into a rice paddy in Southeast Asia. Why do you think Muhammad Ali did not choose the easy way out of just you know, be joining the USO, doing tours, wearing red, white, and blue boxing trunks? Why did he choose this route, which risked, of course, 10 years behind bars? Well, according to him in interviews of that time and in later in retrospect in books like The Greatest by him and, and Dick Durham, when the Selective Service Committee and lawyers and other athletes presented this scenario where if you go in, Muhammad, you're not actually, as you know, going to be on the front lines. You're the heavyweight champion of the world, much like Joe Lewis in the mid-1940s or much like Elvis six or seven years ago, you're going to be in special services and you will be boxing exhibitions for the troops and doing things like uh, fitness training and morale boosting things in front of the troops, although you will be an enlisted person. And every time somebody like a boxing promoter or somebody with selective services or his legal people who were just, pre they were just pre presenting both options in terms of, uh, his attorneys, Chauncey Eskridge and his other attorney, they were just showing him both sides of the table. He would say, that's actually even worse symbolically, because if I go over there and I'm in special services and I'm treated like Elvis was or Sammy Davis Jr. or Joe Lewis, and I'm doing these exhibitions, it shows that I approve of the war and the U.S.'s role over there. And by doing that, it has nothing to do with me in combat, although my religious body is opposed to 
all U.S. wars. He said the symbolism is that the demographic that's most at risk to be drafted are poor boys, rural boys, and urban boys. And if young black guys see me over there, they're going to think that I'm giving approval to the U.S. role in Vietnam, and I'm not. So it's not a matter of me not having an M-16 in my hand. It's a matter of me not being involved at all uh, politically. One of the things that I always think about with Ali not uh, crossing the line going in the draft is the societal impact, because I think we rank the societal impact right now as being positively seismic. But I also wonder sometimes how much of that is just history looking back. And I was wondering if you could give us a sense in real time, April 28th, 1967, what was the impact of Muhammad Ali making this choice to not take that step forward? Well, that's such a compelling question and such a such an astute question for a couple of reasons. One, by 66, when most sports fans, when they tune in to see him fight people like Ernie Terrell and Carl Mildenberger on wide world of sports, knew that he was probably going to resist the draft, is how it would have been termed by sports fans. He was already the most hated public figure in the U.S. So by April 67, when it was almost 100% clear that he was only going down to the Selective Services headquarters in Houston to not be inducted, the level of hate mail, the fact that there were only three network TV stations, Almost all the major newspaper columnists, except Robert Lipsight, were against him. Uh, phone calls, hate phone calls, death threats. He was the most hated figure in America. And it's one thing to be the most hated figure in America when there's message boards, chat rooms, CNN, Skype, bloggers, and everybody is self-selecting their media. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to be the most hated public figure in America where there's only ABC, CBS and NBC, there's an hour of nightly, actually a half hour of nightly news. There's only the major daily newspapers as your outlets, Sports Illustrated and Sport. And you can't self-select your media. So everybody is feeding in and, and processing their opinion about the U.S. role in Southeast Asia through either the president or General Westmoreland or columnists in a time and Newsweek and things of that nature. So the risk to life and limb. Uh, he's going to get married to Belinda in June. The family issues, the legal costs, uh, the risk of being in your athletic prime at the age of 25 is almost incalculable by 2017 standards. When I think of what Muhammad Ali sacrificed, and speaking about the sacrifice of getting his belt taken away, the sacrifice of being outside the boxing world for over three years uh, after that decision to strip him. I think about, uh, of course, his, his health and his death after decades of dealing with Parkinson's disease. How much do you think that should be put on the stripping of his title and the layoff? Because, you know, he comes back, he's a much slowed fighter. When he comes back, he also has money problems that he would not have otherwise had. 
He always said in his early 20s that his plan was to retire, you know, at age 30, rich, pretty, the best of all time. And instead, he's boxing, you know, deep into his 30s, into his early 40s. Uh, as somebody who basically can just take a punch and rope-a-dope as opposed to somebody who could dodge all the punches. But maybe that's not the complete story. Maybe he was somebody who always would have would have wanted that attention, would always would have boxed deep into his 30s. It's difficult to say. So I wanted to ask you that question, though. This decision by the U.S. government to go after him so hardcore for refusing to fight in Vietnam, refusing to be drafted, how much of his physical state can we put on the U.S. government's persecution? That's uh, another very strong question. Uh, it, it has a Jackie Robinson element to it, except Jackie was retired uh, when his health debilitated and Jackie wasn't a prize fighter. So I'll put it athletically. In 1968, Ali would have been 26. Joe Frazier was only four years out of the Olympics. Uh, George Foreman was a year too young, a year before his Olympic uh, heroism in 68. Thad Spencer was a contender. Patterson was still around as a contender, as he always was during that decade. Quarry would have been a little young. Leos Martin, he could have fought for a title shot. Liston was past his prime. So if Ali had had the belt in 68 and 69, there wouldn't have been, obviously, this elimination tournament with Patterson and Ellis and Fraser and those guys. By 69, he's 27, which is about, for most males, your prime in terms of putting on weight, mm -hmm. speed, stamina, uh, muscle-to-body-fat ratio, quickness, and obviously his reaction time, which is key. By about 70, when he's 28, he would have already fought guys like Quarry. He probably would have defeated Joe because he wouldn't have fought Joe the first time with the three-and-a-half-year layoff. And even that fight, even though one person had an 11-4 on their card, I mean, that was a very competitive fight, and he, he rose – two seconds after being dropped by a left hook that would have killed the average person. That was after a three-and-a-half-year layoff. If he had fought Joe without any layoff, he would have defeated Joe, and there wouldn't have been anybody around compelling to build a gate. He probably would have already fought Bonavina by about 68 or 69. So because there wouldn't have been demand for closed circuit or a national TV audience on Wide World of Sports, by about 70 or 71, he would have still been undefeated, and a lot of guys probably wouldn't have even really been able to give him a good close bout in terms of physically laying a, a hand on him, because as you state, there's no layoff. He probably would have, because of his social activism and because of his growing family and because he was in the nation, he probably would have retired because there wouldn't have been a demand to see him fight these guys he had already beaten. Mm-hmm. So health-wise, I mean, you're talking about not taking the punches to the upper body and to the head that he takes in the 70s, because in the 60s, he doesn't take those punches. Mm, that's a really powerful point. And then monetarily, obviously, if he's not fighting to recoup... Lost earnings. Losses and le legal fees and things like that, because it went all the way, as you well know, and your list, some of your listeners know, to the Supreme Court... He's not fighting for those reasons anymore. And he always expressed, as you say, in, if you look at interviews in 62 and 63, he's a sort of a well-rounded, worldly, likes to travel person, likes to go to other countries, visit mosques all around the world. He doesn't like to just box. He's kind of a, a Bill Russell uh, kind of person in that way. I don't see him fighting after about 1970. And I, I also don't see... 
much of a public demand if, if you know, people can't even lay a paw on him when he's 27 or 28 years old. No, that's right. That's right. That's, that's a big health. That's a big health difference. Yeah. Emotional health and, and neurological health. Right. Emotional and neurological health. And I'm sure you've seen the punch count statistics of how many punches he took before the title was stripped and how many he took afterwards. And it's like you're talking about two different fighters in terms of style and the punishment that they had to accrue. I guess the, the, the sort of vexing question always comes back to how much was uh, Muhammad Ali, particularly after the movements of the 60s died, how much was the attention of being in the big fight, the big moment, the big spotlight? Would that have proven to be too much to resist as he got older? I mean, we'll just never know because he was compromised so greatly by the government's persecution. I guess that's the most important thing to take away. I think he liked the spotlight, but I think if you look at how easily or how comfortable he was when he did, when he was in so-called exile and he spoke at college campuses, uh, when he was being interviewed by people like Dick Cavett and David Frost, when he was in other venues, other arenas, uh, no pun intended, when he was away from boxing, there's a lot of athletes that have always wanted to be perceived as sort of well-rounded and not in a box. Uh, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was that way. Russell was that way. I think Will Chamberlain was that way in a sense of like owning racehorses, being a DJ, not being seen as this big goon that could only stuff the ball into the basket. I don't mean socially and politically, although he did, he was very politically active uh, on the moderate right, you know, for Nixon. But there's always been these people who, and in an Ali sense, it's not a really formally educated person, like a Jackie Robinson or a Kareem that's formally educated, who is wants to be seen as a person away from their sport. And mm-hmm. I don't think after maybe 69 or 70, the lure of the crowd or the ring or the adulation would have been uh, as tempting for somebody like him because he would have accomplished everything in the ring and he would have, he wouldn't have been the social figure if they hadn't taken his title away or the martyr outside the ring that he would, if they hadn't stripped it, but he would have still been speaking about the things that were going on in the late sixties. And I think he, to hear Belinda tell it uh, and, and people like that, uh, Khalil Ali talk about it in retrospect. He liked that. He really liked uh, being welcomed, even not, not just in, in the black power movement and, and, and then speaking it rallies for the nation, but I mean the college atmosphere and the debates and mm-hmm. the uh, panel talks. And I think he liked that because when you're not, when you graduated 367th out of 391 people in your high school class, and you just leave the high school with a certificate of attendance and not a diploma because you're boxing golden gloves and tournaments every weekend and you're away every Saturday and Sunday to be considered a a person of the mind uh, who's being profiled by the Norman Mailers and the Joyce Carol Oates is probably just as entrancing as the the, uh, applause outside the ring. Bijan Bain, this is really helpful, this anniversary. I hope it doesn't get forgotten. It certainly isn't going to be forgotten on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Always great speaking with you, Dave. Thanks for having me again. You as well. That was Bijan Bain, ladies and gents, author of Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball. 
and another terrific book called Martha's Vineyard Basketball. And now it's time for the section of the show we call our Just Stand Up Award and our Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. First, Just Stand Up. Stand up to Seattle Seahawks defensive end Michael Bennett. It's going out to Michael Bennett because he recently flew 15 hours straight just to do a panel here in Washington, D.C. on his own dime just because he wanted to speak to Nora Ericott and myself at Busboys and Poets where we interviewed him in front of a crowd that was so packed that the line stretched from the Langston Room, which is where we did the event, all the way out through the restaurant and onto the sidewalk. There were hundreds of people who could not get in. Now, why were they lining up to hear a football player speak? It's because Michael Bennett has recently been very outspoken, not only on the issue of Black Lives Matter, but on an issue we've talked about on this show, uh, his decision to not be part of an Israeli-sponsored and organized trip of NFL players. And Michael Bennett spoke about that decision. In the crowd, there were Palestinians, Jews, black, white, people wearing their Mariners gear. And it was just an amazing event. Michael Bennett was crystal clear about his motivations and what he was doing and why he was doing it. And the part of the event that really touched me the most was the fact that I interviewed Michael Bennett a couple months back. I believe it was right before the first round of the NFL playoffs. We played that interview on the Edge of Sports podcast. People can go to edgeofsportspodcast.com if you want to hear it. And just to talk to him and hear with my own ears about how politically he has developed since that time is remarkable. This guy has just been reading since that time. And his politics and his focus... They're amazing. And then, of course, the fact that he was there and speaking out, it then became news. ESPN reported on it. Uh, Other news outlets reported on it. The Washington Times. So think about that for a second. Because an athlete is saying it, we're having all of these discussions about racism, about Israel-Palestine, about sexism. And Michael Bennett was just knocking it out. And it's looking very much, I'll tell Edge of Sports listeners, y'all could be the first to know, that I do believe I'm going to do a book with Michael Bennett now. We're going to do a, like, activist athlete memoir thing. And it should be very badass. And so thank you, Michael Bennett, honestly, just for being you and for living this kind of authentic life. Now, just sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Gotta go to any member of the New England Patriots that comes to this White House on April 19th. Already six members of the Patriots team have said that they would not grace the Donald Trump White House with their presence. And we'll see how many actually do show up. But this will be the first sports team to actually come to the White House. And Lord knows every Patriot who's there knows that they have a choice. They can follow the path of people like Martellus Bennett. Or they can follow the path of Tom Brady, who, when he was invited to the Obama White House, said he was too busy. He was seen in an Apple store. And I can just guarantee you we'll be there for his buddy Trump on April 19th. And it's very disturbing that they're hosting the Patriots on this day of April 19th. Because here's a hot take for you. And you want to call me crazy? Call me crazy. But this is a White House that's big on symbolism. And Steve Bannon, who is an open and proud white nationalist... Uh, who has now fallen out of favor in the White House, but who is the chief strategist. There's just something very disturbing about the fact that the New England Patriots, 
the only team with any kind of value that actually talks to Donald Trump, the only people in our celebrity-obsessed society who are celebrities who return this guy's phone calls. But they will be there on April 19th because April 19th is a very disturbing day in U.S. history. It's uh, the day of the 1993 51 days FBI siege of the Branch Davidian building outside of Waco. And it was the day in 1995 of the Oklahoma City bombings uh, by Timothy McVeigh. And so these are days that are seen in the violent white nationalist world as their day of resistance, April 19th. It's always a day. I mean, who knows if it'll happen now, but it's always been the day under both the Obama and Bush White Houses of high alert for fear that there could be terrorist activity on this day, April 19th. And there have been scores of terror plots that have actually been foiled on the day of April 19th that were going to be brutal events of white racism. And there's something that's really uncomfortable about the coincidence of the first sports team that's going to visit the White House. And they're the Patriots. And they're Donald Trump's team and all the rest of it. And they're just happening to be there on April 19th, the day that, believe me, Steve Bannon probably has tattooed across his back. And remember, this is the White House that their homepage of the Huffington Post said has a quote-unquote Nazi problem because Sebastian Gorka, who's a key advisor, has like sworn allegiance to some Hungarian fascist group. You got Steve Bannon. You've got all of uh, Sean Spicer's comments about the Holocaust, which I'm not going to belabor people with, but it's just to say this is a very disturbing White House when it comes to actual ties to this sort of ideology. They absolutely know what April 19th is. So this is just a call out to the New England Patriots who are going to be there on April 19th to say, please don't be part of this pageantry. Please do not. It won't be remembered well. And if you do go on April 19th, sit your ass down. And now a quick word from the other podcast that the nation sponsors. It's one of my favorite pods, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. This week, John Wiener interviews the great Tom Frank, the author of What's the Matter with Kansas? And he asked Tom Frank, would Bernie have been able to beat Trump? And Tom Frank explains why that answer is hell yes. Plus, he's got Amy Willens on the show to talk about Ivanka and Jared and Ari Berman, who's one of the most important journalists who's working right now, who's talking about voting rights and voter suppression. He looks at voting rights under Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. This is Start Making Sense. It's politics without the boring parts. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com. And now we've got the section of the show that we call Kaepernick Watch, where we look at the latest happenings with regards to former San Francisco 49ers, current free agent, current, yes, he's being blackballed quarterback, Colin Kaepernick. A couple of points this week on Kaepernick Watch, just keeping folks in the loop. The first, in what my conspiratorial mind sees as an utter slap in the face, Matt Barkley, the new quarterback for the 49ers, has been assigned a uniform number. Is it his number two that he had in Philadelphia? No, it is not. It is number seven. Yes, they are giving Colin Kaepernick's number, assigning his number to Matt Barkley. This at a time where Colin Kaepernick's jersey is still one of the highest-selling jerseys at the NFL store. Gee, is that just a coincidence that they're trying to muddy who number seven for the 49ers is? I think it is. So you see people wearing number seven, it'll be like, oh, is that Matt Barkley or Colin Kaepernick? 
which is absolutely absurd. The second thing is in a quick Instagram post that Colin Kaepernick put up this week, and I just wanted to echo its sentiments. And he just said, Rest in power, King. You will be missed. And it was a tribute to the late, great Charlie Murphy. Things escalated to the point where, you know, my man got too familiar, and I ended up having to whip his ass, man, you know, because, you know, he would step across the line. Habitually. He's a habitual line stepper. Charlie Murphy passing away at 57. Two quick notes on this from me. Uh, First and foremost, I can't believe I'm even having to say this because I thought I learned this lesson with Prince, but I had tickets to actually see Charlie Murphy about a year ago, and I gave those tickets away because I was thinking, oh, I can always see him another time. It was a rough night with the kids. It's just like another reminder to me because I also had that happen with Prince. It's just like you never know when we're going to lose greatness, and if you have the chance to see it, you should probably do it. Second thing I just want to say is that I'm somebody who loves comedy. I love comedy sketches, and I will say, and I've given this a lot of thought, that I think Charlie Murphy's true Hollywood stories might be the funniest comedy sketch in the history of television. I'm putting that out there, and now let me tell you why I think that, because I honestly can't think of one that's funnier. So you can say to me, well, something else is as funny. Even other Chappelle sketches like Mad Real World, some of the Celebrity Jeopardy episodes on Saturday Night Live, so hysterical. Eddie Murphy doing Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood way back in the early 80s. I mean, there are a lot of great sketches out there, no doubt about it. Anything with Will Ferrell, more cowbell, for goodness sakes. I mean, there's genius out there in the comedy sketch world. But I just cannot think of anything funnier than Charlie Murphy's True Hollywood Stories, whether it's about Rick James or whether it's about Prince. So rest in peace to Charlie Murphy. Thank you for what you gave. Game. (laughs) Blouses. Well, that's all this week for the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much to Amy Trask. Thank you, Bijan Bain. Thank you so much to my co-producers, David Tigabu and Daniel Baker, and to everybody out there listening. If you ever want to call our hotline, if you have any questions, critiques, agreements, disagreements about the show, you can always reach us at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Please subscribe to the show if you're just listening to this over SoundCloud. Go to iTunes. It'll show up magically in your phone every time we put out a new show or Stitcher or your podcast app of choice you can always contact me dave zyron over twitter at edge of sports to everybody out there listening we are out of here stay frosty everybody peace Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets 
if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.